We are in the middle of a series, though, and we'll get plugged in there, called Peace Has Come. And we have been talking through this series, and this has been kind of the overarching series point. If you want to write it down, this is what it is. Peace with myself and others starts with peace with God. It's a mouthful, but peace with myself and others starts with peace with God. In the first week, started this two weeks ago, the first week we said this, peace with God, I am not born having peace with God. That I'm born into the nation of sin. That because of my sin, there's a barrier and I do not have a relationship with God. There's a separation there. And this is what we also said, that I personally cannot make my peace with God. There's nothing I can do, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing I can say, there's nothing you can say to make peace with God. Yet, we showed this picture and we said, but God sent his son Jesus to make peace with us. That when I say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, you now have a relationship with God. We said this chasm in between is much deeper and wider than we could ever imagine because of our sin. We could do nothing to create a bridge to get across there. Yet Jesus coming to die for us, rising again three days later, he says, say yes to me. You can have peace with my Father. You can have peace with God. You'll have meaning and purpose on this earth to live it out. That was the first week, and we had to start there. And you'll see why today a little bit. The second week, last week, we said, peace with myself. That was the conversation. So we said this line, peace with God leads to the peace of God, which allows peace with myself. We looked at a chapter in Philippians, Philippians 4. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he said this in a kind of short uh, statement, short passage. He said, peace of God, to have the peace of God, he said, worship, don't worry. He said, trust in the Lord and run to him in conversation, run to him in prayer. And he said this, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. It's beyond what you could ever imagine. You can't explain it, but it will guard your heart and mind just like a military guard. Like it will stand there and you'll have the peace of God. This is interesting because this conversation, it's wrapped completely around the first Christmas, right? Obviously, we're celebrating Christmas, and when you look at the first Christmas, there was not much peace happening during that story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus at first Christmas. Like, Mary and Joseph are traveling, and they're looking for an inn. There's no inn to be found, and she's pregnant, about to give birth. That's a little, like, nerve-wracking for me, right? That would be, like, intimidating, a lot of craziness happening. King Herod, who was the ruler of the time, not much peace under him, and he personally didn't have peace because he's, like, hearing about this Messiah, this king that's to come. He's like, we got to find this guy and kill him. Like, this cannot happen. The shepherds, right, the shepherds had an interesting interaction with angels, and you see in the passage of the angels come and the shepherds are fearful. They're like, what in the world is happening? There is not much peace taking place in the first Christmas, and today we lack peace, and that's why we're talking about this. That we lack peace today, not just in our world, but in my own personal world, and that is key. And today we're going to talk about peace with others. We're going to talk about peace with others because we talked about this. Circumstances, circumstances take away my peace, right? Circumstances, situations, things that happen, you're like, they take away my peace, but people, people take away my peace. People create a lack of peace in my life. I can tell you from example, right? My son is 11 months old. When he first entered our home, right, and we're trying to figure out his schedule and all this stuff, you feed him, he goes to sleep, you put him down, right, and you'd walk out of the room real quietly, and you'd shut the door, and you'd have the monitor on. If you're watching that monitor, and I kid you not, 
Ten minutes later, it starts to like roll a little bit, and you're like, oh, no, it's happening. You're just trying to enjoy a movie, an adult conversation maybe, dinner, I don't know, good, getting some sleep. And all of a sudden, he starts to cry, and you're like, oh, there it is, the lack of peace that I was looking for, just 30 minutes of sleep, right? If you're a parent, you have been there, right? We all have people in our life, and I love my son. That's not a knock on my son, but it just happened. We all have people in our lives that disturb peace. Maybe it's that crazy Uncle Fred at the holiday parties. You're like, he just doesn't, he just wrecks our peace. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your coworker. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. And we all have people in our life that just wreck our peace. I remember when this kind of fleshed out for me for the first time. I was about six or seven years old. And I, uh, we had family friends over from Ohio. We lived in Indiana. And there was a, their son was my age. We loved hanging out when they could come and visit us. And so we were outside one day playing over this weekend that they were there. And we had a shed in the backyard. And in the shed were a bunch of different games and toys and things of that nature. And we had wiffle ball bats in the shed, which was a blast to play wiffle ball, right? And so me and my friend, we went to the shed. We got these wiffle ball bats out. And we walked outside. And my neighbor loved to garden. He had oh, this amazing garden, flowers and vegetables and fruit, anything you could imagine. And then in the back of that, he had this section cut off for his prized tulips. Okay, these tulips were uh, like his, his joy. Like he loved taking care of them. And my friend said, hey, we should go over to the tulips. We should knock them down. And like any good six-year-old would, I said, yes, we should, right? <laughs> we walk over with our wiffle ball bats and we just start going to town on these tulips. Every single tulip, gone. It's out of here, right? We're like, we accomplished the goal. So we go back to the yard. We go inside. We're just hanging out. We're having a good time. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on our door, and my dad answers. And it's my neighbor, and he's crying. He is in tears. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah, he's in tears. And we didn't know this would be awful, right? Six-year-old. My dad's like, what's happening? He thought the worst. And he's like, my tulips, they got knocked down, and I think it was your son and his friends. My dad, being the great dad he is, he said, well, let me check with him, right? I don't know if it was or not. I'm just going to go check with him. We'll talk it out. So my dad came to me, and he talked to me one-on-one. My buddy's dad, whose name is Keegan, Keegan's dad came and talked to him one-on-one. Me being, you know, the good kid I was, I confessed my sin. I said, I'm sorry, Father. I knocked down the tulips. Keegan, being the heathen he is... <laughs> lied to his dad and said, I didn't do anything. So dads got together and my dad's like, Joel confessed. He said it was them and, you know, it's all, we'll get it figured out. And King's dad's like, he, he said it wasn't him. Like, I'm not going to punish him for something he didn't do. So I, the next day for my punishment, I don't know how big the hole was in totality, but I was digging this hole for my neighbor that he was, he was trying to do something with. I'm not sure, maybe bury me or something. I'm not sure, but... <laughs> I'm digging this hole, and my, my buddy in the yard is just watching me. I, the shovel's bigger than I am. I'm digging this hole, and at that moment, I realize this. My decisions have a deep effect on who I have peace with and who I don't. Me and my neighbor, we did not have peace, right? I had to shovel and dig this hole so that we could finally like amend and have peace, but I definitely did not have peace with my friends, me and him. It was a little conflict and tension. Not until a year later did he confess and go over and apologize to my neighbor, which at that point, you're not really getting punished. You're just doing it because you have to. But I remember that point being, being huge for me. 
lacking peace with someone, right? It's a silly example, but we all have experienced it. And I think this hits home for us more than the first two conversations. First two conversations are important, but let me tell you why. Peace with God, it can be a distant, distant thought. It is the most important thing to think about, but it can be a distant thought because we don't go day to day and think, oh, peace with God, that's something I need, or peace with God, man, I'm struggling with this and I don't feel it. Like, it can be a distant thought sometimes. Peace with myself, peace with myself, and I think like as individuals we're growing to understand what that means, what that looks like, but sometimes it can go day to day and we may not recognize it, we go through a good season, I don't think about it, but peace with others. We experience it, we feel it, we see it, every day. We, we see it every day. It's a part of our life. We feel the tension and the conflict. And I think it's so important to understand this because the first week I talked about peace. Peace is not situational. It's relational. And this hits home. This hits home with peace with others because I think that we run into having peace with others situationally more than relationally. That my peace with others is dependent on my opinion, dependent on if I'm right, dependent on my belief, dependent if I feel good, that's when I'll make peace with others. And that's what our culture tells us. Well, if they agree with you, then you can have peace. But if they don't agree with you, watch out. It might be your enemy. You don't want to run into that. Right? And what happens is we get this thought that if they don't believe what I believe, if they don't have the same opinion that I believe, if they don't feel the same way I believe about this, then I can't have peace with them. We're a separated, separated world in that way. And our culture feeds us that. It has to be relational. Because if it's situational, I was looking this up, I, I'm just intrigued with uh, different content to pull for sermons. I found this. There is uh, an organization or a movement called Peace One Day. Peace one day, and in September 2001, on September 21st in particular, they made the National Day of Peace, okay? And basically what that means, it's a ceasefire, and that ceasefire day leads to humanitarian actions taking place for different countries around the world. It is a great organization, it is a great movement, but I thought this, they're trying to fix situational peace with situational solutions, that it's one day that if everybody can just kind of stop what they're doing, we can get this in, it's fine. It will never, never go the length it needs to relationally. It just stops for a day. I think what we're going to see is God speaks into this. He's like, no, no, I want it to be relational because peace with others is based on the value of relationship, not my opinion. It has to be based on my relationship, not my opinion. If it's based on my opinion, 95% of people in this world, I will never have peace with. It just, it's just a fact. It's just a fact. But if I value the relationship, I could have peace with 100% of people. Now, I know that's crazy, right? You're like, well, how is that possible? But you can make peace with so many more people. Today, we're going to spend time navigating that, okay? Week one, we said this. We are born into the nation of sin, Okay, so we're naturally enemies of God. We're separated from God. There's that chasm, deeper and wider than I could ever imagine. And the interesting thing is, we talked about recognizing this conflict with God. Sin's a separator, right? And Jesus, saying yes to Jesus, allows me to have peace with God. But my conflict with God, you might want to write this down, my conflict with God creates a ripple effect to conflict with others. My conflict with God creates a ripple effect to conflict with others. That my vertical relationship and the conflict that can happen there because of my sin, it will have ripple effects to those around me. And oftentimes it's because I choose a pathway, I choose a pathway that's crooked, 
Right? Maybe I'm a self-righteous thinker and a self-righteous liver, and so I know I'm always right, and I know I've made it, and I figured it out, and it's, it works that way between you and God, and you're like, oh, I got it figured, right? Or maybe you're just super religious. This pathway of like, if I just do enough right and I do enough good, I'll be fine, or we're just reckless, and that's the crooked path we take. And it destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with other. Matt Chandler puts it like this. Conflict with God leads to collateral damage to those around us, like shrapnel. It's just going to blow, and it's going to hit all of those around us. And the beautiful thing is this, though, that our conflict with God, that he sent Jesus to make peace with us, that when we say yes to Jesus, we can have peace with God. Yet, even though I've said yes to Jesus and I have peace with God, yet I can still have conflict with others that I can still have conflicts with others, that I can be angry, resentful, right? I can, I can have a blameful attitude, bitterness, a fallout, or brokenness, whether it's in your past and it's something you've never dealt with before, you've never uh, recognized, you've never taken steps to figure out, or it's in your present. Don't look at the person next to you, right? It's your present. You're walking through something, conflict, a tension. There's a lack of peace in your marriage, a lack of peace in your family, a lack of peace in your friendships, at work, whatever it may be. And inevitably, everybody, 100% of people in this room will face a lack of peace, conflict, tension in the future. Like it will hit. It will hit. And there's an interesting statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 5, verse 9, Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus gave. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I want you to write this down. God makes his peace with me, but I need to make my peace with others. God makes his peace with me, but I need to make my peace with others. I think that what Jesus was saying is you are a peacemaker. Make peace with others because God has made his peace with you. You run after that. You take the first step in that. But how do we come to grips with this? How, how do we do it? And like I said before, peace with others has to be laid on the foundation of peace with God. If you do not have peace with God, you will never fully comprehend and understand what it looks like to take steps in peace with others. I guarantee it. We're going to look at a passage today. We're going to flesh out a ton. Okay, it'll be a ton, and so we're going to bounce around different passages, but I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a paperback or a phone in front of you. We're going to hang out in this passage, jump around to some other passages, but here's what you need to know about this passage as you turn there. Paul is writing to a church, the city of Corinth. Okay, that's why it's called the letter to the Corinthians. And he has two uh, books or two letters to the church of Corinth. This is two Corinthians, right? There's one Corinthians. First Corinthians is more of, I would say, that letter and directed to them is more of a harsh correction, Okay, there's just some things in the church that are just not going as Paul sees fit. And so he kind of gives it to them. There's, some, there's just some real conversation. Let's just make it happen. The second letter, this letter we're going to look at is more of a friendly direction. Think of a friend just kind of walking along a path with someone, and that's what he's doing. Right? He's like, okay, we've got to figure these things out, and then let's just walk. We're going to look at this passage. There's three things we're going to flesh out. That was six, but there's three things we're going to flesh out. Here we go. 14 to 15, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. First thing you write down, if you're a note taker, saying yes to Jesus compels me to peace. 
saying yes to Jesus compels me to peace. This word compels uh, is intriguing to me. I don't know, I'm just a word nerd maybe, but it's intriguing to me because it means constrains or power to influence or to bind. And I think when we think of compelled or being compelling, naturally we go to the emotional kind of moving inside. That's what I think of when I think of the word compelled. I remember I was a sophomore in college. I went to this fall retreat with a ministry that was on campus at Ashland. We went on this fall retreat, and Saturday night of the retreat, they had a chapel. They had a time where we worship, and we heard from uh, a speaker and things of that nature, and then they had us reflect. And I was sitting there, I was praying, I was kind of journaling, I was doing things, and I looked over, there's a table there. I forget who brought the table, but on the table, there were just different opportunities that financially or experientially you could give to uh, kids overseas, right, that were struggling, or you could go on a mission experience. And I thought in that moment, you know what? I think God's calling me me to be a missionary. I think he's calling me to be a missionary. So I went home, okay, now. I went home, and I did not do this the right way, and then I learned later But I was 18 or 19, and I went home to my parents, and I said, I'm quitting school. I'm going to get married to Jess, and we're going to go over to a country. I don't know where it's going to be. I don't know where it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to take place. I remember my parents being like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Because it just totally was out of left field. It was totally out of left field, and here's why. Here's why. Because what I thought was this compelling move, I need to go, I need to figure out, right? I learned later it wasn't a calling by God, that rather it was this emotional moving inside of me, right, that I thought, and then days and weeks later, I realized that that's not where I needed to be. That's not where God had me go. The compelling inside stomach feeling never moved me to action, And yet missions is awesome, and I have a high respect for uh, missionaries. There's one sitting in here uh, right now who's going to go give his life to missions, and it is absolutely amazing. What I thought was compelling me, right, never moved me to action because that was not where God was leading me. And in this passage, what Paul wants us to get is this, that Christ's love should compel us and move us to action. We have to live it out. It should be so compelling, so heart-wrenching that it influences us to take steps after steps after steps, right? We need to do that. So how do we know or what does it look like that Christ's love compels us? 1 John 4 says this, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's not that we loved God, is that he loved us, even in our sin, as sinful beings. And he said, I am going to send Jesus, my son, to die for you. Experiencing Christ's love. Sorry, this is not on the screens, but I'd have you write it down. I'm the worst that way, right? I'm writing down extra stuff. Experiencing Christ's love. First, recognizing the cost of his love. Recognizing the cost of his love. This is the experience. Understanding that Jesus, the Savior, would love me so much that he would take the cross for me that he would go to the deepest, deepest parts of the earth, sinful beings and interact with us, get into the messy situations as the perfect savior of the world, and then go to the cross as his mission. That is costly. That is so costly. That he came down from the presence of God and in the perfect relationship with God, the Father, and said, I'm going to do this for them. The second thing I would have you write down is this. Experiencing Christ's love 
recognizing the extent of his love. Recognizing the extent of his love. Ephesians 3 talks about the depth and the width and the length and the height of his love. There is no numerical value that we could put on it. There's no understanding that we could reach that would uh, give us the ability to understand the extent of his love. So let me use this as an illustration, okay? What if, if I were to come in, you know, some week and you're asking me, hey, what would you do this week? Or ask me on a Sunday, hey, how was your week, okay? Two different scenarios. Let's just say earlier that week on a Tuesday afternoon, 3 p.m., I took a canoe out on Lake Anna. And I just was canoeing around Lake Anna, having a good old time. I don't even know if that's allowed. It might be illegal, you know? I'm not sure. But you throw a fishing rod out, maybe there's a fish in there that's not polluted, or I don't know what's going on there, right? I'm canoeing around, and I come on Sunday, you're like, how was your week? Well, that experience is not really thrilling, so I probably wouldn't share it with you, right? It's probably not the most uh, thrilling experience. You may not want to know about it. I definitely may not want to admit to it. But, but if I were to tell you about three years ago, I went with my wife to an extended family member of hers who lives in Florida, who's pretty well off, and owns a yacht. And he took us out one evening on this yacht that has four bedrooms, a full kitchen, all the bells and whistles, and he allowed me to drive it. He allowed me to go fishing on it, and I caught this giant fish, which you know how fishermen are. It's like that big, and I wish I had a picture because it was legit. It was that big. And he cooked burgers for us, and we had bacon-wrapped scallops, and it was the most relaxing and fun and enjoyable time on that vacation and maybe vacations past that. Now, if I were to come Sunday and you were to ask me, how was your week and what did you do, I would tell you about that because I want you to experience that. I want you to know about it. I want you to know and kind of soak in what I got to soak in. If I could buy a yacht, which I never will be able to, I would want to take you out and say, this is what he treated us to. You have to experience this. Or I'd want to take you down to Florida, which I'll never be able to afford to, and I want you to experience this, right? Paul is saying, I want you to experience Christ's love. I want you to experience what I have experienced. I want you to be compelled by it. Because as much as I experience is as much as I'll extend. That is key. That to the limit that I experience it, to the level I experience it, that is what I will extend. What I extend is based on the experience. And what Paul is saying is living for Jesus and not myself. That's how you extend it. That to the level you experience That's how far you'll extend. It compels him to action, and Christ becomes the central figure in his life that his life revolves around. He's like, experience it. Be compelled by it. You understand it. It's beyond what you could ever imagine, and then go out and make sure other people know what your experience is like. Right? John 13, 35 says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's the question I would ask. Then I got to fly. Is Christ's love compelling me to have peace with others? That's a big question. We have to start here. We do. Is Christ's love compelling me to have peace with others? If I'm not seeking peace with others, has Christ's love truly compelled me? Mm. That's, that's hard for me to hear. Because in my life, I think about that. Has Christ's love compelled me? Have I experienced the depth and the width enough to take the first step? And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Or have I forgotten the depth of the love of Christ? What you experience is what you extend. And for some of us in this room, for some of us in this room, this idea of peace with others is an outer space concept. It's never going to happen. 
You don't get it. You don't know who I'm around, married to. You don't know my coworkers. You don't know my kids. You don't know the circumstances. You don't know, right? Or maybe it's like, I'm right, they're wrong. It's never going to work, right? Some of us outer space. Some of us, though, some of us, it's like a digging a hole concept. And you're like, I'm just going to grind it out. We've got to do it. God says so. The Bible says so. And so I've got to make peace with others. And I've got to make peace. And what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. Peacemakers are compelled not legalistically or unrealistically. Peacemakers are compelled not legalistically or unrealistically. They're compelled by the love of Christ. We are not compelled because I have to. Oh my gosh, I have to go love him. I have to have peace or I got to because the Bible says, and I'm not compelled by the unrealistic, oh, it's never gonna happen. But Christ's love because Jesus came down to this earth and he died for all of us who are sinners. There should be no possible way that we should have a relationship with God. Like there's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in me. He says, I have come to save you and now that love, I want it to compel you to go after others and do what I've done for you. I'd ask two questions, then we'll move on. Are you compelled, influenced by Christ's love? Simple question, right? Are you compelled or influenced by Christ's love, yet it has a harder answer? I was walking through my mind. It's like, am I compelled and influenced by Christ's love to take the step to love others, to take the step to have peace with others? Then the second question I'd have you write down is this. Are you extending what you experience Are you extending what you experience? Have you truly experienced the love of Christ in your life? Because you can tell by how someone extends what they've experienced. That's where I would start. Compelled by his love. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17. Here we go. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God. This is what I'd have you write down. Saying yes to Jesus changes my perspective of peace. Saying yes to Jesus changes my perspective of peace. I am a new creation. Paul says, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. It's not like I put a mask on, a wig on, and it's like, that's new. No, no, like everything is new when you say yes to Jesus. And spiritually speaking, our perspective changes. John 3, 3 says this, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God lest they are born again. Titus 3, 5 says this, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It changes because I am born again. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 3. I say yes to him, I'm born again. That not, he talks to Nicodemus, he's like, not physically, but spiritually. And now you're, you're a believer and you've said yes to me and you're born again. And what happens is I'm a new creation born into a new family. That spiritually speaking, I go from death to life. I'm born into this new family. I become a person of peace, but I'm also born into the family of peace, the family of God, the church. It's important because now that I'm a part of the family, it changes how I navigate peace with others. Reconciling instead of revenge, forgiving instead of forgetting, confessing instead of covering. And Paul, he also writes to another church, the church of Ephesus, and he's writing into this cultural divide and racial divide of uh, groups that would be called Gentiles and Jews. And he's, he's writing into this culture. They're divided. They're divided. And he says, no, 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 you need to understand there's a unity with what Jesus did by dying for you. There's a unity now. There's a unity now that you need to understand. And he goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, 
He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, and strangers, but the fellow citizens with God, people and also members of his household built on foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He's like, I've amended, I've reconciled. There's a building now, the church, and I'm building this up, and there's two things I want to flesh out. First is this, we got to celebrate our differences. Being in a community of peace, we got to celebrate our differences. Differences naturally lead to a lack of peace, right? It just is. Differences of race, culture, language, food, whatever it may be, it leads to conflict. It can lead to tension. But here's what I would say Paul is talking about when he talks about this dividing wall of hostility, it's gone through Jesus that we need to complete instead of compete. Complete instead of complete. That competing leads to complaining and pride and division, but we need to celebrate our differences because our differences are found in our creator God. And he's created us that way so that we can build into each other and ultimately the church can thrive. He's creating a new building, building of the church of the body. The second thing I would have you write down is this. Celebrate our differences, then navigate our conflict. Navigate our conflict. Conflict leads to a lack of peace. Amen? It leads to a lack of peace. Tension leads to a lack of peace. And conflict is never desired, but it's always present. I don't think conflict is always bad. I would argue that. But oftentimes it kind of fleshes out and bad things happen because of it. And Paul mentions in here, he's like, we've been reconciled to God. How we, how we run into conflict, being a part of the family of peace, needs to be completely different than how you see the world navigating conflict. And we're going to flesh out four things real quick that I think are steps that Paul and other writers, uh, Jesus is talking about in Scripture on how to navigate conflict differently. First thing is this, recognize. Recognize. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. This is Jesus talking, Sermon on the Mount again. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. You first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. If you're married, you get this passage, right? If you're married, you get this passage. I love my wife dearly, but there are moments where me and her will have discussions, and I forgot to do something, you know, because it happens. I forgot to do something, and she'll talk to me about it, and I'll be like, but you didn't tell me perfectly where it was that I needed to get for you, or you didn't communicate what needed to happen. Come on, babe. Don't you understand? And we kind of go, and we go, and then we start laughing because I just acted like a nine-year-old in front of her, right? It's tension, there's conflict, and oftentimes we'll look at the other person and say, man, you got a speck. Look at what you've done. Look at how you've created this conflict. Look how you've created this tension. Don't you see where you're wrong? And yet what Jesus is saying, that you missed a log. I think he's using this exaggeration because in reality, like when we deal with conflict, it is a log. He's like, pull that out, you'll see clearly. Pull that out, you'll know how to navigate it. Pull that out, 
And I think he's saying, look at yourself first. You have to look at yourself first. Look in the mirror. Look at yourself first. Because when you do that, you recognize your sin, your internal depravity, but you recognize that you are not always innocent. Mm. That in every conflict, it's not always you are the right one and they're the wrong one, right? But you also recognize what God has done for you. You have to recognize what God has done for you to repeat what he's done for you to others. Like we miss that sometimes. We miss what the, the cost that God spent for us, right? Recognize we're not always innocent. Recognize what God has done for us. Second thing I write down starts with an R. They all start with an R. We did pretty well with the alliteration. Respond. Respond. Recognize and respond. Responding leads me to take the first step. I would ask this question. Are you willing to confess? Am I willing to confess my sin? 1 John 1.9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. James 5 puts it this way. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is key. I think there is confession, obviously, to uh, God the Father, but I think there's confession to each other. Are you willing to confess and confront? Taking the first step is not easy. If you are in sin, are you willing to confess to those around you that you are in sin and it is having that ripple effect on their lives? If there's tension and conflict, are you willing to, in loving, grace-filled, merciful way, confront as needed, right? Not in a way that's pound, 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 you're wrong, I'm right, I'm perfect, you're not, let's get this figured out. Are you willing to confess and confront? And then I'd ask this, are you able and are you willing to forgive are you able and are you willing to forgive? Right? Matthew 18, 22 says this. I think Jesus is, actually, I think he's got a lot of humor, and I think this is a part where he has humor. I tell you not seven times, but 77 times when the disciples are asking him about how often should we forgive. And he doesn't say 77 times so we can check mark the 77 times we do it. He's like, you shouldn't be counting. You should just continually forgive because I have forgiven you. And here's what I would say. Are you willing to not only ask for forgiveness, but receive forgiveness? Are you willing to ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness? That's key, both ands. So we see recognize, respond, reconcile, reconcile. God desires a relationship to be restored as a part of the family. We need to choose gentleness and humility. Galatians 3 says this, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. We do it and we recognize and we walk alongside family. We have to do it gently because, not that we have to, because it's been extended to us. We show them we love and we care for them as a family member, but we do it humbly, understanding that I am not perfect, that I have done wrong, but also understanding I could have had a part in the conflict that it may not just be them. I might have had a part. That's part of pulling the log out of your eye. Lastly, I would put this, rest. Rest. And this does not mean, whew, I work so hard to make peace with all those people. I get five hours of nap time on Sunday afternoon and rest on the couch, right? You can do that, which hopefully some of you will do that today before Christmas crazy. But I think what uh, we'll see Paul's writing in Romans, rest in who God is, as sovereign Lord of your life. Romans 12 says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, big statement. It's a big statement. Those who follow Jesus, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but, live, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen, I don't think he's saying, okay, step back, you made the peace, and then wait for the lightning strike. I think what he's saying is this. We can rest in the fact that God has settled the score. Okay? God has settled the score. That we can be kind instead of convict. That we can reconcile instead of have revenge. That we can forgive instead of forget and just move on. It's whatever. Right? This is key. This is key. Now, I didn't say this in the first service and I regret it. But even if you take these steps, it is not guaranteed that the person you seek peace from is going to give it to you. And I would say this, that is not on you, okay? As you walk and make peace with others, sometimes they will not accept that, okay? I want to make that known, that it may be hard to do even when someone doesn't accept it. We got to fly. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, 18 through 21. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. He identifies us as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I write this down as the last big point. Saying yes to Jesus makes me an ambassador of peace. Saying yes to Jesus makes me an ambassador of peace. You've seen an ambassador, you know an ambassador, an ambassador to the nations, right? They walk in and they navigate conflict and they try to keep the peace. So if you got the U.S. ambassador going over to whatever country, what they're trying to do is navigate what's the conflict, what do we got to figure out, what's going on, let's try to come to peace terms, or let's try to come to like midway so that we could get along. And that's what Paul's saying, I have identified you on earth as followers. If you're following Jesus, you said yes to Jesus, you're an ambassador. He calls us children, right? But you have another title, it's ambassador and multiple other titles. He says, this is key understanding, understanding that this title leads to the mission and ministry that you are led to do on this earth no matter what your day job is. First, I would write down as this, sharing God's peace. Sharing God's peace. Ephesians 6.15 says, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Uh, Paul is writing here to the church of Ephesus about the armor of God. He says you need to run with the gospel and you need to share it. You need to share it to your neighbors, to your family, to your friends. You need to run after people and share the gospel. The gospel or sharing the gospel should not be a checklist Christian thing that we just do. It shouldn't just be like, yep, we got it done. Rather, it's a way to extend peace and peace with God to others' lives. We cannot save them, but we can extend to them what it looks like to have peace with God through saying yes to Jesus. Paul's like, you're an ambassador of the good message of Jesus Extend that peace. Let them know about it. Help them understand it. And then secondly, I write this down, demonstrating God's peace. Isaiah 1.17 says this, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. That we run after those who are in justice. There is no justice in their life maybe, or maybe they're in a hard situation. Maybe their family is broken. Maybe they're fatherless or motherless. Maybe it's a widow, whatever it may be, that we seek justice, that we seek that they understand what peace is all about. We do not do events. 
We do not do give it away just for the programmatic ability to do them and say, rah, rah, we got people in our building. We do it to extend peace to our community. That there are people that come that have no peace in their life because of people around them. And it's an ability for us to show and care and love. That's what give it away is. Hope for the holidays, the bike events. Right? When you had trunk or treat, it was a way for us to extend to our community. This is what peace is all about, and we want to love you through it. That's what we do here, not programs. We extend peace. Two things, sharing God's peace, demonstrating God's peace. And it leads us to this. Just some questions to end with. Are you compelled by God's love? Are you compelled by God's love to extend peace? Here's the thing. Like I said, peace with others is built on the foundation of peace with God. For some of us, it starts with understanding what it looks like to have peace with God. It has to start there. That we'll never know fully what it means to have peace with others and chase after and take the first step of peace with others until we understand that Jesus took that first step with us so that we could have peace with God. For some of us in this room, it starts by saying yes to Jesus today. It starts by saying yes to Jesus, what he's done for us on the cross and rising again, not only so we could have eternal life, but that we could have life to its fullest on this earth with meaning and purpose and so that we can demonstrate and understand completely what it means to have peace with those around us. But for others of us, for others of us, we have people in our life that we are not at peace with. Well, I would guarantee if I put a statistic on it, 75 to 80% right now, you're sitting there and you're, you can think of a person's name that past or present, you are in the midst of conflict or tension, heartache. It's just rough. It is rough. And you're like, we'll never have peace. I don't know where peace is going to come. I'm not sure what's going to happen. My question to start with, are you compelled by God's love to take the first step? Are you going to be the peacemaker? Because that's what Jesus did for us. He says, repeat, repeat what I've done for you. Run after those that you do not have peace with. Then I would ask you this, are you able, are you willing, say, are you willing to live out what it looks like to live in the family of peace, to recognize, to respond, to reconcile, to rest. Are you willing? Are you willing to take those steps and take the first step to making peace with others? It's key. It's key. And I think Paul and Jesus, biblical writers are like, this is so important. Because in our world today, we just, we just take it. Like, who cares if we have peace? As long as I get what I need to get done, accomplish what I need to get, who cares? Right? What if we were a community that ran after not only each other with peace, but our Barberton community in peace? Lastly, have you recognized that you're an ambassador of peace? What would it look like to start praying for your three? We say here at Grace, your three, three people maybe in your life that do not know Jesus yet. What would it look like to just start praying that God would, would work in not only your life, but their life so they can understand what it means to have peace with God? Neighbors, friends, family, the Christmas season, this is just hypersensitive. You get together with people that maybe you don't have peace with, families, like, come on, it's real. It's not like shy around it, right? It's real. What would it look like to start praying that God, you would work our neighborhood, and then demonstrating the peace that we walk in to give it away, programs, events that we do and say, this is a way to extend peace to the community we're around. Listen, I know you're all like dazed and you're like, well, why does he keep talking? Listen, 
listen, I, I have a burning passion for this because our world lacks this understanding. If our world could get hit just by one person at a time, and I'm not being like sentimental about it, but if, what if we walked out of here and said, we are going to pursue making peace with others, even, even if it's really hard and doesn't make any sense to me, even if they don't accept it, even, even if it's been 30 years or 30 days or maybe 30 minutes, right? No matter where it's been, because if we start to do that, if we start to extend peace to others, right? They would start to see that God extended peace to them through Jesus. It would give us opportunities to see people come to know Jesus and say, I want to have peace with God. I want to live that life. What if? That's what I asked. This whole series, this whole series we've been talking about it. What do we start at the foundation of peace with God and said that allowed me to have peace with myself and peace with others. And that's where we start taking steps one person at a time. You don't have to change the world today, right? One person at a time saying, I want them to understand what it means to have peace with God. Let's pray.